Hello, Book of Wrestling listeners. If you're enjoying our show, you might also like some of The Ringer's other narrative podcasts, like 22 Goals, A History of the Men's World Cup. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll rage against colonialism, a full-service podcast. Or you could listen to Gamblers, a fantastic show about professional hustlers, people who make money off the most surprising stuff. Did you know you can gamble on backgammon? Also iconic, if you ask me. Or maybe you'd like one of our cultural narrative shows, like Gene and Roger, which is about the legendary movie critics Gene the Strangler Siskel and Roger Big Papa Pump Ebert. Icons through and through. We like iconic stuff here at The Ringer, and we appreciate you letting us tell you all about it. Thanks for listening. On June 28, 1998, at WWE King of the Ring in Pittsburgh, The Undertaker and Mankind squared off in a legendary Hell in a Cell match. Squared off is probably the wrong idiom. It conveys a sort of traditional opening. Two guys pacing around each other and locking up, collar and elbow style, and settling in for some sort of, you know, Greco-Roman grappling. This match had absolutely none of that. None of the traditional feeling out period that starts most matches. There was no kind of traditional anything. The match starts off on top of the cage, and before anyone could even get their bearings, The Undertaker tossed Mankind, real name Mick Foley, off the top of that 16-foot steel cage, through an announce table, and onto the floor. That was the first minute of the match. Eventually, after lying on the floor for what seemed like forever, Foley was getting gurneyed back to the locker room. The Undertaker is standing tall atop the cage, seemingly basking in the glory of his quick victory. The Hell in a Cell cage, for the record, is floating up in the air. It was raised to allow room for the medics to get to Foley, and The Undertaker was left sort of milling about for several minutes while Foley was immobile on the floor. And as the cage finally descends, Undertaker finally starts climbing back down. But at that moment, at that very moment, the camera cuts back to the aisle where Foley is suddenly reborn. He rises from the gurney, smiling, half-possessed. He forces his way past the accumulated medical and production staff and starts limping back toward the ring. As he reaches the cage, referee Dave Hebner, who's there in a shirt and tie, is not refereeing the match, and Foley's friend Terry Funk are earnestly, forcibly, trying to hold Foley back. It bears mentioning that, that the Mankind mask, the leather mask that, that signified the Mankind character, it's gone at this point. They took it off his head after the fall, and for the rest of the match, it's Foley more or less as Mick Foley. So without the mask, with what can only be described as a crazed look in his eyes, Foley yanks free from the medical team and starts climbing back up, and The Undertaker, who hadn't even reached the floor yet on his descent, starts climbing back up too to meet Foley on top of the cage. Again. They re-engage up at the top, Taker hits a headbutt, and seven seconds after they make contact, The Undertaker chokeslams Foley, and he goes straight 
through the chain link roof of the cell and into the ring below. From Spotify and the ring, this is the Book of Wrestling, 25 catchphrases that explain the Attitude Era. I'm David Shoemaker. Now, if you don't watch wrestling, and if you don't, thanks for listening, you must be thinking, well, this was all planned, right? Well, no. The idea, at least as it's been retold through the years, is that there would be a series of choke slams that would slowly detach the ceiling panel from the frame and eventually Undertaker would sort of stomp Foley through, dangling at first, for a controlled fall onto his chest. When The Undertaker's foot went through the roof at the very start of the match, last episode, that was the first sign that this wasn't rigged up as securely as they thought it would be. Instead, Taker chokeslams Foley and he just goes straight through the roof as if it isn't even there, and he lands totally uncontrolled, unplanned, on the ring mat, which was famously hard back in those days. Foley lands on his upper back, you know, the shoulder blades, neck, shoulders, head area, with the most gruesome thud that you can imagine. And to make matters worse, a steel folding chair that they had up on the roof as a weapon fell through the roof with him and landed on his face. None of that was supposed to happen. The fall off the top of the cell through the table, that's the moment that will live on forever. But this one, this is the fall that almost killed him. Here's announcer Jim Ross reflecting on that moment. It was uh, challenging to say the least because, it, it, again, it became that second surprise. And the way Mick landed in the, the middle of the ring after falling through the top of the cell, which was not planned, you think, you think the cell is safe and very firm and all that good stuff, but it wasn't. And here is Celtics broadcaster Sean Grandy, a friend of JR and a lifelong wrestling fan. And as he says many times on the second one, which we know was a much worse bump off the top of the cage, that he didn't even get up off the ground. And thank God he didn't because he, he would have flipped around. He would have easily landed on his head. And I used to think for years and years, I thought that was a cover story, that that was an unplanned because he didn't want his wife like losing her mind, <laughs> Adam. And like as years have gone by, I've started to think. Because, you know, they almost go through where everybody forgets the thing did almost end before it started because the cage was going when they were walking across it. It wasn't set up for this. Nobody thought about that part, right? That it wasn't set up for this kind of bump or this kind of, you know, being on top of it. Once when he got up, you're like, okay, maybe the first one wasn't so bad. But it's I think we all have that longtime fans when we're watching, maybe to protect ourselves a little bit. We want to think it's not that bad. But mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's, it's so apparent the more you watch that, the more you watch anything, just how physical, what a physical throw it takes. Somebody stop the damn match! Enough's enough! The poor son of a, he's broken in half! JR's call here was reaching fever pitch. He was regaining his composure, it feels like, getting a little more into character, but he was still drowning in the pure, emotion of what he was witnessing. 
I don't know if it was suspension of disbelief or what. Maybe it's just that JR's character was basically just Jim Ross. When he called for the match to be stopped, it felt, well, real. And moreover, as a fan, it felt necessary. There's got to be some truth behind that, right? Oh, absolutely. There's plenty of truth. A absolutely. I was, as they say in the uh, internet world, uh, I was uh, begging for the match to stop. I didn't care. It was only three minutes long. It was the most dynamic three minutes that I'd ever seen in my career. So I don't know if that's enough for the, to earn the fans, uh, respect and their value for their ticket they bought and all that stuff, but nobody ever dreamed. I don't think we ever talked about totally, uh, taking the dump off the top. I didn't sound very good at it. It was more than excitement. It was legitimate fear, anger, all the above with all the different hats he was wearing and his legitimate concern coming in that, you know, in the moment, all those emotions, which is what makes it. And what makes the Attitude Era great is, you know, so much of it is gritty because it was so real. And so there were so many things going on. Everything was so fragile that there was just a, an authenticity and a danger about everything that was happening. And that comes through when you watch the match. So that first bump. OK, sorry. Brief digression here. The Pro Wrestling Glossary is a wonderful, vibrant thing. You can spend a day going down rabbit holes of the carnyisms and insider speak that make up the lingo used backstage and in the ring. Fans in the modern age have adopted a bunch of these. Babyface and Heel are two prominent examples that I use frequently in this show. Another common one is Bump. The Wikipedia definition is that Bump is, quote, to fall on the mat or ground. Which is right, but it feels incredibly inadequate here. For all its vibrance and wonder, wrestling lingo in general fails in terms of depth or severity. Everything is a flat smirk, a wink without emotional attachment. Technically, Foley's falls, both of them were bumps. But every time someone hits the mat or the floor in a wrestling match, that's a bump. And if every fall from every clothesline is a bump, the word feels wholly inadequate to describe what happened to Foley that night in Pittsburgh. Anyway, that first fall or collision, I mean, the English language isn't much better either, had barely settled in our stomachs when the second one occurred. If the first one was a daredevil stunt gone wrong, the second one was closer to a videotaped murder. Like, is Taker really trying to end this guy? Of course, I mean this metaphorically, sort of. Here, Undertaker represented the wrestling industry and Foley represented its toll. According to his book, Have a Nice Day, Sometime after the match, Foley asked The Undertaker what he thought when Taker was looking down from the top of the cage to Foley lying in the ring. And The Undertaker answered, I thought you were dead. Taker is always stoic, but it's hard to look at him here without reading your feelings onto his emotionless face. Like, what in the hell are you doing, Mick? Or more directly, are you trying to frame me for murder? <laughs> After he hits the mat, after the second near-death experience in this match, the trainers are immediately around Foley again as he's lying there, as are Terry Funk and Sergeant Slaughter. Funk wrote in his own autobiography that when he was watching from the back, he, quote, thought Foley was dead. I ran out there and I looked down at him still lying in the ring where he'd landed. His eyes weren't rolled back in his head, but they looked totally glazed over, like a dead fish's eyes. End quote. Soon, 
Taker drops himself down into the ring. He lands awkwardly on his bum ankle and hops on one foot to relieve the pressure. The closest he came to breaking character in that match. The closest he came to breaking character maybe ever. Though one would forgive him if he had done otherwise. To buy time, to let Foley recover, I guess, he grabs Terry Funk and chokeslams him and rolls him out of the ring. And then, somehow, some way, Foley climbs back to his feet. Undertaker had a broken ankle in that match, and one of the inadvertently comedic, if you want to call it that, moments of the match is Mick takes two of the most hellacious bumps in the history of the industry. And as we're wondering if he is alive or dead and continue to go on, Taker has to get down from the cage. And he lands awkwardly and almost he stumbles. And, he, you know, there's a moment where he almost breaks character for a second because he la- and Mick is just taking this huge bump and Taker falls like this far onto a But his ankle is broken. For the record, there has historically been some disagreement over the level or degree of the Undertaker's ankle injury. But in 2018, he himself confirmed that he did have a fractured bone in his ankle that night. So he has a natural you know, reaction. And so that was one of the reasons they had to figure out how to salvage that match, because Taker could, was not very mobile. And of course, the famous conversation with Mick and Terry Funk you know, beforehand about how to top what Taker and Sean had done. At the beginning, Foley took the match to the roof of the cell because he couldn't think of anything more dramatic. That much was deliberate. The first fall was deliberate too, if so unpredictable as to be beyond any real expectation of safety. When he fell through the roof, though, that was by sheer accident. How is he still standing up? I don't have a damn clue. There's shoes, there's chairs. It was never going to happen like that again. And Vince made sure everybody within earshot was aware of it. I don't, I don't approve this. It's, it's, it's too scary. It's too risky. We just don't need to do this ever, ever again. Everything stopped. And there's a, there's a inadvertently comedic moment where JR goes into the, the, I don't know almost what you call it. Damage control is the wrong word, but he apologizes. If this is the end of the match, we apologize. And Jerry Lawler in a great moment of honesty or whatever says, why would you apologize for that? As if this is the most spectacular thing we've ever seen. And JR immediately, you know, he's in that mindset of, well, it was only a two minute match and we thought it was going to be a 15, 18 minute match or whatever we thought it was going to be. But that's that moment. That's when you knew it was just, it was different. Your uh, partnership with Lawler, Jerry the King Lawler is of course, you know, the stuff of history, but kind of felt like you were operating in synchronicity at the kind of an all-time high during this match too. Lawler was, well, compared to a lot of his other work, was about as serious as he's ever been. And it seemed like you guys were weaving in and out of each other in a way that, I don't know. I mean, I remember loving hearing you guys call matches, but you rewatch it, you really listen close, and there's a real magic to the way you guys work together. Well, we, we had, Jerry and I always had great chemistry. We had similar philosophical points of view. I knew all the time where he was going to come from because he was consistent and he was good. And, uh, I could, I could always rely on Jerry to come through with whatever we needed at that point in time. Sometimes we need to comedy. Sometimes we need a drama and him being a multi-year, he was, in, he's been in the business longer than I. So I just trusted his judgment in that respect. And I wouldn't know a lot of guys. I would have been more talk heavy if I was working with another partner because Lawler knew what he was doing. And uh, I also believe he was scared to death. Jerry the King Lawler was a gruff, smart mouth, tough guy wrestler who ruled the Memphis territory that he co-owned for years. But 
When he came to WWE, he was mostly a comedic villain. On the microphone, where he has spent the bulk of the past three decades, he's often a puerile, smart-mouthed degenerate with heelish tendencies. His rep as a lowbrow one-liner machine is earned, but it's an oversimplification. In some moments, moments like this one, he was an integral force. The guy who was just saying, fight, fight, or more famously, puppies, puppies, is now speechless, and that means something. It was even more important as a counterweight to Jim Ross, the unserious yang to JR's disgruntled yin. When they're in lockstep, the mood shifts. The near tragedy and uncertainty of the night extended past the conversations we heard on the air. They were feeling it off microphone, too. He was whispering, is it over? Are we done? Did you know this is going to happen type thing? And I didn't know, but I did think we were done. I just didn't see how a human being could take that fall. After the second fall, after Foley somehow got back to his feet, the match somehow continued. Taker pounded on him, and then Foley managed to knock him off the top rope as Taker went for his old school move. He's still mounting an offense, and they're locking these guys inside there. Who's, who made that ruling? Why don't you just let him? Oh, my. Oh. And he's smiling. Uh-oh. He is smiling. At this point comes perhaps the most iconic visual moment of the match. The picture of Foley that everybody thinks of when they think of this fight. He's lying in the corner, exhausted and broken. And he seems to be smiling. Smiling after everything he's been through. According to Foley, at this moment, he's actually using his tongue to feel a hole that's been cut through his bottom lip. The tongue, his tongue, can go straight through to the outside under his bottom lip. And listen, I hate to be that guy pointing and saying, hey, look, a metaphor. I mean, I like to tease them out, let the listeners draw their own conclusions, but I mean, hey, look, a metaphor. The discovery here of a disgusting, startling, borderline, catastrophic injury is projected to the viewer as a feeling of joy. The pain, the agony, it's indistinguishable from the elation, from the high of this match. And as a viewer, those things are almost indistinguishable. The smile that is not a smile, it stays with you. At the same time, there's blood in Foley's mouth and something white in his nostril. At first blush, it looks like a booger, but it's not. It's one of Foley's own teeth when they got knocked out by the chair that dropped off the top of the cage with him when he took the second fall. Let me just say this again. Without realizing it, Foley had his own tooth in his nose. I don't know if a tooth went through uh, his lip in mankind and if he bit his tongue, his left arm is, is, is dangling. I think that the blood that's coming... Maybe the weird, the most incredible part of the match is after the second bump when they just proceed to have well something resembling a wrestling match and you just have to go into regular Jim Ross mode for a little while, right? It's like 10 minutes in to just absolute chaos. Still call the story that you're seeing. If I was seeing something on the monitor uh, or on the big uh, Titantron, well, sometimes that's how we cheated. If you, if you lose your monitor, sometimes that monitor on the, the big Titantron thing, uh, or what do they call it nowadays? That was a, a backup, but it was just a, an amazing thing. I mean, 
again, I had never seen anything like it. And so everything he heard me say was not preconditioned. Or I, I call this, like I said earlier, I call this back at Baton Rouge in 86 or something. Never. So it was a, it was a tough, uh, it was tough because again, I think you make a good point. My feelings for Foley were strong, personal, and that affected my call. It caused me to get more personal about getting help, getting them out here. Cause you know, I'm envisioning the, the agents back there eating donuts or something. You know, what are you guys mm -hmm. doing back there? What's it taking you so long? Did you not see what happened? So, uh, that's where I was there with that deal. I, but my message did not, was not heard very well. <laughs> my message was not heard very well in that deal. And so here comes, uh, Mick around the corner and I said, no, he's not going to go try to go up the top. Cause I figured what taker might do, they might do an ad lib and taker might climb down and then they finish their match on the floor or in the ring. And, uh, but the time nobody knew that the, the cage was faulty until it was too late. They go outside to the ring floor and Foley tries to pick up the metal ring steps to use as a weapon. And he just physically can't lift them. Taker gets the steps and hits Foley with him. Taker goes back into the ring and jumps out through the ropes and Foley moves barely and Taker flings himself into the cage wall. They're doing basically anything they can at this point to keep Foley in the match in the state that he's in. They're in hell. Undertaker and Mankind are in hell. Hell is in Pittsburgh tonight in this match. Foley gets hold of the chair and finds various ways to use it on the Undertaker and he goes for a pin that Taker kicks out of. At this point, Foley has had two near-death experiences, but the toll has rubbed off on The Undertaker, too. Watching it, you believe that he's destroyed as well. How do these guys continue on, JR? It's absolutely baffling. It's desire. Look, look at Mankind's face. He's, honest to God, he's laughing. It seems like now that Mankind is enjoying himself. Then come the thumbtacks. You heard that right, thumbtacks. A brief historical lesson. The first appearance of thumbtacks as a weapon in a wrestling ring, according to most people, was in a Taipei death match in ECW between Ian Rotten and Axel Rotten. The weapon, if you want to call it a weapon, soon made its way to Asia, but not to its ahem home in Taiwan, but rather to Japan, where a match between Terry Gordy and, yep, you guessed it, Mick Foley was the first to be advertised as a quote-unquote thumbtack match. Many more thumbtack matches followed in Japan, ECW, and other hardcore American promotions like CZW. But when Foley brought out the bag full of thumbtacks inside Hell in a Cell, it was still a novelty. And it had certainly never happened before in WWE. In some ways, thumbtacks dumped from a burlap sack and spread out all over the mat, a carpet of pure pain, were the perfect pro wrestling hardcore stunt. The visual, and the anticipation for the visual was much greater than the physical toll. Sure, it hurt to land in a pile of thumbtacks, that's obvious, but it was almost impossible to do real lasting damage with them. Certainly less than wrestling with real barbed wire, as opposed to the sort with the tips trimmed off, that's what they do a lot of the time, or, you know, falling off the top of a cage onto the floor. But as a visual, or as a statement of intent, those thumbtacks were irreplaceable. Because if he didn't get the message from both of his falls off the cage, seeing Mick Foley's skin covered in the glistening silver of thumbtacks made the point. He was willing to do anything for this match. 
both in character and in real life. The toll of this match is epitomized in the thumbtacks in another way, too. Afterward, after Undertaker tombstone Foley into the pile of thumbtacks and won the match, back in the locker room, Foley apologized to producer Michael P.S. Hayes for forgetting the thumbtack spot. He didn't forget the thumbtack spot. Hayes had to remind Foley that there were thumbtacks sticking out all over his body at that very moment. But God Almighty, he's a human pincushion! Demon of God, he's got those tacks sticking in his... After the match, Foley leaves the ring and goes to the back on his feet, but basically being carried by Funk and referee Mike Chioda, his arms draped heavily over each of their shoulders. The crowd is applauding with a uniform reverence. Funk has tears in his eyes as he looks into the audience and points at Foley, imploring them to appreciate what his friend has just done. Well, by God, if anybody ever deserved a standing ovation, whether you like him or you don't, that's your business. But how anybody could not admire the effort of this man, mankind, Mick Foley, and The Undertaker is beyond me. I also thought, you know, one more thing about the call of that one. There's a moment where he has to take the mask off, which he always hated. He always hated the mask because it wasn't great to breathe in or to work in. Where he takes the mask off and he's on the ground next to JR. And almost subliminally or not, JR starts referring to him as Mick Foley at that point. And I think that became a legacy change for Mick, who had been all these different characters. And if you go back, not many people referred to him as Mick Foley before Hell and Cell. But I think everybody started doing it from that point on. JR had called him Mick Foley on TV before, but the transition in this match is a real one. He goes from a character to a person. When he hits the floor the first time, after that first fall, he transforms from a character into a person. Of all the people who have ever played themselves inside a wrestling ring, nobody is as real, as human, as Mick Foley. 
And that's largely because of the humanity he presented in this match. And that's because of the humanity of Jim Ross. Believe it or not, the show wasn't over. Stone Cold Steve Austin versus Kane had to follow the Hell in a Cell match. And Jim Ross had to keep calling the night's events. Yeah, it was hard. It was hard to get in the back of the mode. You got to forget about what you just saw. You just have to forget about it and move on. And that's what we try to do. As a human, do you... Or you think, do you think about Mick at all during the main event? I mean, are you, oh, are yeah. you trying, trying to get updates or do you just know? Yeah. And just well, I, could, I could hit my talk back button where the only people that are hearing me are the ones on, on headsets backstage. And so I could do that with my talk back button. And, you know, I'd say, I asked a couple of times, any update on Mick? And, you know, at least with the doctors, looks like he's going to be okay, but we're not sure. Mm-hmm. You know, he had, tooth lodged in his nose and bloody as hell. And, uh, I could, I could only imagine how, how much his body hurt. Just, it was just incredible to me. I'd never been that close to what I perceived was a very, very much a, a, a epic near fall. Like you, you don't come back from this. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that any other guy that I can think of, I'm sure Taker would say the same thing, would have done it. It took a lot of balls to do that for Mick, mm-hmm. but he made himself famous and he, he did dodge a bullet. You know, he didn't get permanently injured, which is to me still astonishing. After the break, the toll of that match and its legacy. That night in Pittsburgh, and this is not an overstatement, it changed the course of pro wrestling, of the Attitude Era too, and and of multiple careers. It changed the idea of what was permissible, what was possible in a wrestling ring in WWE. It changed the way we thought about Mick Foley the performer and Mick Foley the person, and it changed the legacy of Jim Ross. It's not every night that somebody takes a fall that almost ends a career during a wrestling match, let alone two. And it's not every night that a play-by-play guy makes the call of his career, of a lifetime. What is your feeling about the afterlife, no pun intended, of this call? I mean, what you've seen, there's a, there's a lot of JR catchphrases, JR quotes that, that have flowed around, you know, in pop culture. But at what, at what point after the match did you, one, realize that was some of the most iconic work I've ever done or some of my best work? But, and two, when did you realize oh, shit, people are going to start saying this to me in airports. <laughs> well, I didn't go that far with it. David, I'll be honest with you. I I was a little bit numb. Mm-hmm. I, th- I thought that the match finally ended and the fact that we've got a issue because I'm the, I am the head of talent relations. I'm losing a main event level guy off my roster, at least TFN. At least, at least that's what I thought. And, you know, miss Mick's going to miss work. Uh, we, we just got him. Some, you know, I've heard, uh, guys say this, you know, there's one thing is to, is to go over. One thing is to get over. And there was never any doubt in my mind that Taker was going to go over at the same time. Mick Foley got over. I was a little still in shock. I would say probably there was a good, at least a good hour when I went back and saw some tape. Of the, of the incident, uh, that I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. And I didn't really remember what I even called. 
because it, it wasn't memorized. It was just real. But it was a while after the show was over till I fully soaked in to me of what we, I had just called and what we just witnessed. It was just totally out of the blue, un, unexpected. How do you how do you explain it? And I, I was only thankful that everything you heard was real, uh, David. I didn't. I wanted the match to end. I wanted the people, the medical team, and all those guys to come out there and and say this son of a bitch from himself. But somehow, some way, the matches. It was decided the match was going to continue. And uh, with that said, the match continued. It's one of those events that drowns out everything that came before or after. The kind of thing that overwhelms the rest of your resume. But it's such a, I hesitate to use the word great, but it's such a great moment that it almost makes sense that it overwhelms everything else. That if that's all that people remember about you, it's almost worth it. I asked Sean Grandy what he thought of the legacy of the match for Foley. Let's talk for just a quick second about Mick Foley, since you have a relationship with him too. Do you think knowing him, or even not, I mean, just as a fan or whatever, how does it, I mean, does this match stand out, not just in terms of history, but in terms of like what he had, what he was putting on the line, you know, how much he was putting himself at risk during this match? I think that's how people remember it. I think, listen, for all the people who know the main things of Mick's body of work, if for whatever reason, something that has skipped through you are the promos he did working for Paul Heyman at ECW oh. in 95. Take a few, take a couple hours one day on a rainy day. Go YouTube those babies because that's as good as it has ever been. And watch the Mind Games match against Shawn Michaels. And I know I get it, Shawn Michaels, so it's going to be yeah. great. But that is, it's these are the phenomenal matches. And again, I think the only reason I hesitate is because when you have a 20-something-year body of work, none of us want to be pinned down to one moment. JR thinks that that kind of generalization, uh, boiling all of Mick Foley's life, all of his work down to one match, down to a few moments, a few catastrophic falls, does a disservice to his career. I think so. Yeah, I think so. He, his body of work, as you alluded to, is uh, pretty tremendous. You know, Foley went on a string of main events uh, soon thereafter. Mm -hmm. and still stays very, very productive for the company. And for himself, his family, et cetera. Cause I was, I was making the payoffs. I know what the guys, I know where everybody's making. He's made a lot of money and he earned it and he deserved it. Yeah. He, uh, that's not, that would not be fair. I would also say in the same respect to this question is that there's just no way in hell he's ever going to top what he did in Pittsburgh in 1998. Yeah. So I don't, I don't want to. You know, you say too much about it and somebody's sort of, well, I want to try to do this deal. Man, don't do it. Don't right. try it. It's not, it's not worth it. If you're going to do it, do it with a safety, with, with a crash pad or something. Take care of your body because especially your back, you know, guys don't understand that the majority of the things that end a wrestling match or end a high spot series is a flat back bump. So guys having a, being able to do, uh, execute flat back bumps is important because that's where you land. That's your landing spot. That's your personal landing spot is your back. And I just didn't think Mick would ever be the same. I don't, I don't know that he quite was to be honest with you, but you couldn't tell by the way he worked. He just, he had the it factor and he had his niche and he was not going to surrender it to anybody. <laughs> 
for any reason. And I always thought this gave me a great uh, street cred mm-hmm. within the wrestling world, quite frankly. And I think that meant more to him maybe than the payday. And he liked the paydays. Your job is very different than Mix, and obviously you're very different people. But but in the same way, is it? Do you ever feel like you know people remember this call, and you kind of wish like, man, when, once you remember some of my other calls, like I have other things I'm more <laughs> proud of behind the microphone. Well, it'd be nice, but it's not deal breaker. It would be nice to have more of your work remembered, but I don't have a problem with that. I mean, you know, it's just, I had other calls, you know, somebody has sent me a thing on Twitter the other day that showed me a clip of undertaker and chef Hardy, where I said something to the effect of climb the ladder, kid, make yourself famous. (laughs) So, so that was it. And it, it stuck all these years later, it's still stuck. Climb the ladder, kid. Make yourself famous. So, uh, yeah, I like to remember some of those. The Austin era has begun. That was a pretty big moment. We launched the biggest drawing card, most uh, prolific babyface. And I know some Hogan fans will disagree, and and that's cool. I don't have a problem with that either. Uh, But I, uh, we that that call was 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 the launching point for Stone Cold. And I knew it was going to be, and there, that's probably one of the only times I want, I want to use this line if it fits. Huh. And that's kind of how I looked at it. If I felt like it's going to fit, then that's what I was going to say. By the time we got to that spot, it seemed like it fit. The Austin error has begun. And to me, that's another important call based on where Steve took that scenario. So it's a, it's a, it's an interesting thing that this. You don't realize that a match you called uh, a pay-per-view that wasn't even the main event is going to have such lasting effect on uh, the viewer and the fan. I had no way, no way. I thought this was going to have this many, this much sticking power. Nobody can picture the things happening until they happen, until they actually exist. They're not, they're not real. Nobody can put their head around. That's why the moments we remember the most are the ones that it was the first time something ever happened because you couldn't have possibly pictured it happening before. And that's what that moment is. That's why it's so genuine because that was inconceivable uh, that that could happen until, <laughs> until it happened. That's exactly right. The afterlife of a match like that has real significance, but it doesn't just exist in memory. The falls live on forever in WWE video packages, and Jim Ross's commentary lives on forever, too, in memes. I mean, look online. Every massive hit in a football game, every crazy basketball dunk that leaves the defender lying, every time somebody lays Jim Ross's voice track from Hell in a Cell over top of it and shoots it across the Twitter airwaves, that's legacy. If you don't watch wrestling, and if you don't, thanks for listening, you probably know what I'm talking about. More people have probably heard JR ironically at this point than ever saw the actual match. Do you remember the first time that you heard your voice on like an internet meme? Like when you heard the Foley call over a basketball game or something like that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, it happens all the time, especially in the month of June. So that's, <laughs> when the, that's when the thing happened. And, you know, we're just getting out of June here now. Here's, as you and I are talking, it's the uh, 4th of July. You know, if they don't screw you up, but. The one thing about this, I don't think about this match all the time, but I'm reminded of it all the time. And I, I, and on days like this, I'm kind of glad that I 
I, I did because I was remembering things, uh, through this muscle memory deal, I guess. And, uh, I just thought it was great. You know, I, I uh, it was a historic moment. Yeah. Is it a, is it a moment that I regale in? Is it a moment that I said, well, I can't wait to relive something like this again. I don't want to ever relive anything like this again. Mm-hmm. Cause quite frankly, if Foley wasn't so damn tough and, uh, used to his body, uh, being punished, then, you know, we ain't talking about this. Nobody else would have done that bump, but Mick. And that's why when they got it to the edge of the cage, the edge of the cell, that's why I thought that, no, wait a minute, surely to God, you're not going to think about that. And then all of a sudden they get an inch closer and a little closer. And all of a sudden Taker gets a t- uh, Mick in a position where Mick can rotate and land on his back. Just never saw it coming. Never saw it coming. And it was uh, pretty damn amazing. Still to this very day, all these years later, still amazing. How do you feel when you hear your audio laid over other videos? Do you feel like it's a compliment or like, uh, like it's a copyright violation? <laughs> <laughs> no, no copyright violation. I just think that it's that those calls have been used so frequently in a variety of moments, in a variety of arenas, if you will, that, uh, after all these years, there's been a lot of, since, uh, the internet got popular, uh, it's all the time. And I can promise you when this podcast drops, uh, it'll be another hit. There'll be other comments. There'll be more thoughts things of that nature. So, uh, but I don't look at it as a negative at all. Uh, I, I look at it. We did good. Jerry and I did good work under the circumstances. I don't know of another announced team that could have pulled it through like we did. That sounds very egocentric. I get that. Uh, there's JR's ego talking again. Uh, but you know, I, I just, I thought we did a hell of a job and I, and I, and again, I don't want to ever do it again. How often do you hear people say that kind of stuff to you in real life? Like you said at the airport. Oh, once a week <laughs> at the grocery store at the, at the oh, bar. Yeah. 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 You're the wrestling guy, right? Yes. Yeah, hey, I watched that hell in a cell match with Foley and Undertaker. That's something else. Wasn't it? You know, th- that's how they get into the conversation or they don't know. They know who I am, but they don't want to admit that they watch wrestling. Then they finally admit that they watch wrestling and they talk about, you know, their fandom and anybody that's in that attitude area world, uh, the fandom is, is, uh, it's, this uh, largely it's the most significant thing that happened in the attitude era. In my opinion, we, you and I are talking about it today. After all these years, we're a long way from 1998. Oh yeah. Yeah. Do you hear you ever like walking down the street or walking through the mall and you hear somebody just yell like by God from like a hundred yards away, just to see if they can get your attention. Of course. Yeah. Is it part of the life now? They've killed it. I, I hear that one a lot. Hey, JR, they killed him, you know, that kind of thing. So, Hey, look, they're having fun. They're enjoying their memory. And I just look at it as, you know, thanks for watching. Appreciate you remembering because some of these people that are saying these things, David, they weren't old enough in 1998 to watch it. They watched this. They've outsourced it. They've got it on YouTube or WWE's uh, online stuff, Peacock thing or whatever, but there's an ample ample, uh, illustrations of, uh, that night available. And so as long as that stuff is still available, I got to think that I'm going to still hear those comments. I think his 
humor about it, like what he's asked about it, as he's asked about it, you know, every day, you you deal with it. You come up with your your funny answers, and and it it goes on. And in this world, I think Jr. has made peace is the wrong word, but I think part of him who wanted to be a football announcer and would have been a great NFL announcer, but he got typecast like Marshall Brady before, right? He got typecast and he wasn't going to get, because of his extraordinary success as the greatest wrestling announcer ever, that was going to hurt him in getting football jobs. So you have to appreciate the irony that his voice and his calls are getting dubbed over football announcers for these great football moments. And how about that for a legacy, right? So I, you know, I, I feel like they both have certainly more than made peace with, you know, with those parts of it. Maybe surprisingly, neither Mick Foley or Jim Ross are defined by this moment. This night was the most notable thing that probably ever happened to either of them, and probably the crowning moment in both of their careers, but they are so much more than this. And anyone who knows this match knows that. They've both written memoirs, they've both done one-man shows, they both unsurprisingly have podcasts, they've both had long wrestling careers in and out of WWE. If any two people in the history of pro wrestling can be called beloved, it's these two guys. Their highest moment might have been that night in Pittsburgh, might have been a near tragedy by any reasonable definition, but their legacies are so much greater than that. And if you had to boil their legacies down to one word, that word might just be humanity. Mick Foley, the performer, the real person who put himself through horror to give us something to remember. And Jim Ross, good old JR, who let us see that moment through his eyes. The man who threw himself to the ringside floor and the man who gave us his front row seat. There are a million death-defying moments in pro wrestling history. There are a million great calls but there's only one match like this one. And that's because it wasn't a stunt. It wasn't a performance. It was life lived, as wild as that is to say. It was, and I use this word deliberately, real. It felt that way. It was that way. And I think these moments, the reason that we're getting back to the same thing, which is that the best moments ever are moments of honesty that are genuine that you get the genuine people and their true emotions. And that's what you have to be in almost any situation is that you have to be yourself. There's a job to do. But the reason we love, and I, I honestly think, and I'm of the school of thought that of the Vince McMahon being a genius, that's always been my, you know, I grew up in the Northeast. I grew up with Vince McMahon. I get all the foibles, all the arguments. We could do a million podcasts, right? On a million different topics, all of them from Montreal to continuing the show after Owen. But I, I got to say, I've always felt he missed a little bit on JR and never understood JR's connection to the fans, to the customers. And it's because he was as he was a real person who was out there every night. And it was the same reason that Dusty Rhodes was Dusty Rhodes, right? That, that he connected. And I think Vince never, I just don't think he ever truly understood whether it was the Southern accent or the cowboy, whatever it was in the way Vince views things. I never, I thought he didn't quite understand the degree of the connection between JR 
and the fans, which is what, you know, as an announcer, particularly if you're, you know, I've done a whole bunch of different stuff. Sometimes you're a national announcer, right? A network type announcer. But when you're an announcer for a team, you are part of a community. You're part of a fan base. And JR was, you know, he was their voice and people, they loved him and they trusted him and they knew he was one of them. And that's why, you know, it was very, it would have been really hard for anybody else. That was the guy you wanted there. That was the, this was their guy. This was our guy, all of our guy growing up because he came up through the business. He had every job there was to have. He was referee, learned the business from Bill Watts. He was on the 500 mile drives, right? During the, the territory days from one place to another, the stuff that doesn't exist anymore. And I think that came through every night. And you could say, I know that there was there were some in the Northeast that wanted that Northeast sort of TV, you know, that TV look and JR didn't have that. I think that endeared him even more to people that he was just, this is just a true regular guy that you could walk up to. And if the, from politics to announcers to everything, that baseline standard of, Hey, I want to have a beer with this guy. I think uh, how does, how is JR not at the top of the list when it, when it comes to that stuff. This is a show about professional wrestling. It's a show about matches and moments, and of course, catchphrases that matter to us and why they matter all these years later. But the Attitude Era is, in part, about wrestling expanding into the real world, both in terms of its influences and in terms of its influence. It's about the mainstream wrapping its arms around pro wrestling, and about pro wrestling, in turn, getting the world in a headlock. And when discussing a moment as significant and as real as this one, it's helpful to look out into the world and try to process the significance of a wrestling match, a fall, an injury, and yes, a play-by-play -play call by placing it in the broader history of sports. Foley's falls transcend pro wrestling. And as God is my witness, he is broken in half isn't just a great wrestling call. It's something bigger than that. Where does that rank in the history of play-by-play -play commentary within its context there's memorable moments in every sport right that you remember yeah. i i can't is there one and maybe it's the era we live in right with the memes and the gifts and the you know as i like to say the gift that keeps on giving uh the when this became attached to we talk about the gifts and the memes but what that means is when something happens and there's a huge tackle uh, or something happens in a, in a football game, something happens in a basketball game, somebody dunks on somebody. The, what that means is the first thing they're thinking of is JR's call. Forget what the announcer just said. I mean, it's probably happened with games I've done. I've probably been dubbed over, right? <laughs> in highlights, it hasn't occurred to me until now with good God almighty, he's broken in half. And that to me is... Well, what you want to do with any moment in sports as an announcer, what you're really trying to do is you're trying to tell the story and get the history right in real time. But you're also trying to make the moment resonate. I went into this business because I wanted to do for kids what the announcers did for me when I was a kid, which was to make these moments better, make them more memorable, you know, document the history. And that would be a part of, you know, how I remember it. As, you know, we say it's just a bunch of sneaker squeaking, right? without an announcer to be underneath it and to capture the moment. And I know that it's funny because knowing these two guys as well as I know them, they have this extraordinary Hall of Fame body of work. And I know there is a 
uh, Maureen McCormick once didn't want to do one of the Brady Bunch reunions because she didn't want to be typecast as Marsha Brady. Sorry. I mean, you're, you're typecast as Marsha Brady. I, what, what do you want me to do? I mean, there are worse things in the world. And it's like, he, at some point, that is to some degree who you are. And I don't think they want to be remembered for this moment. Was that Mick's greatest match? No, of course not. He had great, ma- you know, he had great matches over the years. And JR in a Hall of Fame career of announcing, JR called the, he called the Flair Steamboat matches in 89. Think about that as, you know, true, pure sporting events. So there's always that moment where you don't want to be typecast into one moment, but I'm not sure there is pro wrestling play-by-play attached to any one match ever in the history of the industry than JR's moments and mixed moments coming together. You never, I don't think anyone's really appreciated in real time. And you know, who, you know, when that moment happened, it was JR being JR, as we said, he's not thinking 20 years from now when people are going to be doing podcasts about it or going to be playing a meme every time a, you know, a free safety drills a wide receiver coming across the middle of the field. It's just moments are the moments that people treasure are the ones that are just beyond genuine and you cannot create them. You just, it's a, I guess what I'm getting at, David, is it's a lifetime of preparation of being JR, calling wrestling matches, of telling stories that puts you in a position for when all of a sudden you're sitting courtside for game seven of the NBA finals. You're like, well, I'm supposed to be here. I can do this because I've done it my whole life. And I think that moment was there for JR because he had done it. You know, he was going to be JR no matter what. Hey, look, you just want to go along for the ride, man. We realize as announcers that we're not the key component to the match, but we are important to the match more than a lot of folks think, if folks perceive. The talent certainly would adhere to that. You know, JR did a great job. He got my stuff over. He, he picked up on this deal. This little subtlety was, did not go unnoticed, that type of thing. So I'm very proud of what we did that night. Jerry and I both. Do you have a favorite call of your career? That's it. We talked about it today. Foley's call. Because it's just, golly, I mean, what could I have ever called in my lifetime, my career, that would supersede or overshadow June 1998 Pittsburgh. I can't think of anything. In his first book, Foley wrote, and I quote, I get goosebumps thinking about it even now, as Ross's call was not part of a wrestling match, but a legitimate cry for my well-being. It was probably the most dramatic call I've ever heard in any sport. Purists can have the Giants win the pennant, the Giants win the pennant, but I'll take, would somebody stop the damn match any day? When you look back on Hell in a Cell, taking out all of the human toll and everything else, would you say like that's a, I'm proud of that that call. I'm proud of that work as an announcer. Absolutely, I'm proud of it because it's something that we were never faced with before. And you know, how do you handle something like that? And you don't want to say the wrong thing because you know Mick's got family watching. Uh, you don't want to say the wrong thing like there's no way he's going to be able to survive this. You know, you got to be careful what you say. We try to be sensitive of the family as well. There's a lot of balls in the air on this thing, man. Uh, I could promise you. So uh, it was a interesting day. It was just a, all in all, David, just a very interesting day. One that I had never experienced before in all the years I'd done wrestling. And, and one that I have not approached since. Simple as that. 
None of us knew the damn top of the cell was going to break. I mean, you know, hell, we didn't have any clue whatsoever that that's what we're looking at. I wrote and reported this podcast. The show is executive produced by superstar Bill Simmons, Sean the Strangler Finnessy, and Jumpin' Juliet Lit. Our producers are B. Brian H. Walters, Big Papa Pump Bin Cruz, and Vivacious Fikram Patel. Story editing by Hacksaw Cal Davenport. Sound design and final mixing by Sweet Scott Somerville. The music you hear in this episode is from Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Copy editing by Amar Bad News Burton, and fact checking by Dangerous Daniel Comer. Art direction and illustration by me. I'm David Shoemaker, AKA The Masked Man. Thanks for listening.